So why did Henry VIII break with the Church of Rome and set up his own church in England? Last time at our History Cafe, we took a look through all the popular old explanations, and we discovered that there really isn't a scrap of believable evidence for any of them. It looks as though the key to this story lies not as we've always thought with Henry's mistress Anne Boleyn, but with his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Last time at History Café, we found out that there's no historical evidence for the old story that Henry VIII broke with Rome because of his long love affair with Anne Boleyn. You know the old tale about how Henry's desperate for a boy to succeed him, how Anne held out on him, and how they were prevented from marrying by Henry's stuffy old queen, Catherine of Aragon, who had the backing of an intransigent pope. Look at the evidence we now have, and we realise that Henry VIII hadn't got bored of his Catherine that he showed no interest in fathering a male heir, that Anne Boleyn wasn't refusing to sleep with him, and the Pope wasn't trying to stop them marrying if they wanted to. So we began to broaden this investigation out, to look around the room a bit more. That's when we recognised that there was one central character in the story who's been badly neglected, Henry's queen, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, Catherine was certainly not a dull and pious killjoy in the way she's always been imagined. What we discover, in fact is that she was a serious politician in her own right. And that changes everything. Catherine was a major player in foreign affairs, a political heavyweight at court and widely connected through Europe. She devoted her life for more than 20 years to maintaining England's alliance with Spain. And until 1524, she'd been very successful at it. But then, over the period of few months, she suddenly loses all her influence at Henry's court. This sidelining of Catherine looks to us much less like bedroom politics and much more like an act of foreign policy, a major and very significant change of direction in Henry's European diplomacy. In fact, what's really surprising is that Henry's divorce and break with Rome isn't always examined, primarily from the point of view of his foreign policy. But it's not. Most modern historians prefer to see Henry's divorce not in the context of his foreign policy, but simply as a royal grab for more power. Now that sounds like a perfectly sensible suggestion. And before we get to grips with Henry's foreign policy, we should take a moment to understand it. Besides the king, the church was the greatest landowner in England. It had its own professional staff. In fact, far more men and women worked for the church than for Henry. It ran its own courts. It handled almost everything to do with the relief of the poor. The truth was that week by week, the church had vastly more to do with and control over ordinary Englishmen than any monarch had ever had. Why wouldn't Henry want to take it over? Actually, there were very good reasons why medieval and early modern monarchs hadn't wanted to take the churches over. The deal was that the monarch governed everyone's civil affairs and the church looked after the spiritual, which included things like caring for the poor. And if the king backed the church then the church would return the compliment, and that kind of endorsement was certainly worth having. 
Second reason was that in practice, churches and monarchs worked very closely hand in hand. The reality was, across Europe, that it was the monarchs who appointed bishops and senior clergy. Yes, it was all subject to papal approval, but most of the time that was largely a rubber stamp. What all this meant was that there wasn't much incentive for kings to take churches over. They more or less ran them anyway. That was until the Renaissance and the appearance of the concept of imperium, so named because it meant ruling like a Roman emperor. The Renaissance affected the way people thought about everything, from medicine and music to painting and poor relief. One of its strongest themes was rediscovering the classical world of the Greeks and Romans. Renaissance government was no exception. Monarchs and their councillors looked back with some envy to the ancient Roman emperors who seemed to have had so much more power than they did. In fact, they appeared to have had absolute power. It was something Renaissance monarchs like Henry VIII or his contemporary Francis I of France could only dream of. But dream they did. And the notion of imperium, or imperial monarchy, in the sense of ruling absolutely like a Roman emperor, grew into a very influential Renaissance idea. We might say it was a Renaissance discourse. Well, you can see the attraction, if, that is, you were the ones in power. So, modern historians tend to understand Henry's grab for the English church as nothing more than a textbook case of imperium, a bid for yet more power. This is the explanation of what Henry was trying to do that's been proposed, among others, by George Bernard, J.J. Scarisbrook, John Guy, Virginia Murphy. And there's a good deal of evidence to suggest that the imperium explanation is, well, at least partly correct. Right from the start of his reign, Henry had shown an active interest in bullying the church. In 1515, when he was just 24, Henry had thrown himself into a fight over the power of the church's law courts. After a bad-tempered debate, Henry ominously declared that, quotes, kings of England in times past have never had any superior but God only. Well, not much room for doubt there, then. The following year, he had a run-in with Rome itself over the appointment of a bishop. Henry again stormed that he had supreme power without recognition of any superior, and he got his way. Well, this was more than the stamping of royal feet. It was a clear statement that Henry was going to be an imperial monarch, one with no rival in his realm. And then, in 1516, Henry's attack on the church stalled. At the start of his reign, Henry had made a bid, if not to take over the church in England, at the very least to rule it much more directly than monarchs had before. But then, in 1516, seven years into his reign, Henry had stopped threatening the church, and for more than ten years he played the role of Rome's loyal son. Well, the reason is that his Chancellor, Thomas Wolsey, who was also Archbishop, Cardinal and Papal Legate, that's the Pope's representative, ran both church and state for him, and effectively already gave Henry complete power in England. So Henry had gone back to the tried and tested way of doing things, appoint your friend as head of the church in England and run it through him. Well, it all worked very well. However... According to historians of the Reformation, by the mid-1520s, Wolsey's influence over Henry was in decline. Henry is beginning to think about a new attack on the church, perhaps finding a way to take control. His divorce is therefore a means to pick a new and very personal quarrel with the church. The king chooses to argue that his marriage with Catherine of Aragon had been wrong from the start, and that it was the Pope's fault. What we have to understand is that Catherine had first been married to Henry's older brother, Arthur. 
They were married by proxy when she was just 14 and he 13. The marriage ceremony itself, followed by the daunting public bedding ceremony, had taken place when she was 16 and he 15. But Arthur died just five months later of a mystery illness that they'd both contracted. However, the bond with Spain was important to maintain, and so Catherine was betrothed to marry Arthur's brother Henry, who was the new heir to the throne. But to marry a dead husband's brother required the Pope's dispensation or permission, which Catherine had obtained and she and Henry had got married. Now, however, in the mid-1520s, Henry began to argue that it should never have happened. The Pope at the time shouldn't have given his permission. In fact, according to Henry, Popes didn't have the power to issue dispensations in cases like this. They'd never had any such powers. Uh, now, with a bit of a stretch, you can put two and two together and make a case that in all this, Henry was in fact winding up towards a general attack on the papacy. He would argue that the popes had exceeded their powers. Then he would use that as an excuse to grab control for himself over the English church and take a significant step in the direction of Imperium. After all, wasn't that what he'd been wanting to do since the start of his reign? The proof that that's what he wanted to do seems to be that in 1527, Henry began putting together not a team of lawyers to fight his divorce case, so much as a team of theologians. Historian Virginia Murphy has shown that in July of that year, Henry collected a team who would argue that popes had never had the power to allow a man to marry his brother's widow, something the popes had been doing throughout history. Henry and his theologians eventually produced a series of dense volumes. They argued from texts in the Old Testament book of Leviticus that apparently banned marrying your dead brother's widow. This, declared Henry and his team, was divine and natural law. It could never be set aside, not by a pope or anyone else. But Henry's theological argument was extremely weak, not least because there were other biblical texts in the book of Deuteronomy that actually instruct a man that he has to marry his brother's widow. But, Murphy argues, that was beside the point. Henry's purpose was to argue that popes had been acting beyond their power. Henry never openly admits that his real intention all along is to undermine the pope's power in England. But there is some circumstantial evidence. One historian, Peter Clarke, has recently shown that the short section of the book of Leviticus that Henry chose to base his argument on had, oddly enough, been specifically excluded from Wolsey's powers as papal legate. This matter of deciding whether or not someone could marry a dead brother's widow was one of the few things that the Cardinal couldn't do, at least not without special permission from Rome. And what this means is that Henry was deliberately choosing to base his case on texts which pointed the finger of blame exclusively at the papacy. Well, it looks like this Imperium line of argument is working very well. Henry had been banging on about absolute power since the start of his reign, and by the end of his divorce campaign, he was quite explicit that that was what he wanted. Take, for example, the Act for the Restraint of Appeals. Now, this is an Act of Parliament that dates from 1533, and it finally launched Henry's legal takeover of the English Church. The Act opens with a loud declaration that, quote, by diverse, sundry, old, authentic histories and chronicles, it's manifestly declared and expressed that this realm of England is an empire. Well, having got the buzzword empire in, saying in effect that English monarchs had always possessed imperium, the Act goes on to boast that the English king is, quotes, institute and furnished with plenary, whole and entire power, preeminence, authority, prerogative and jurisdiction. 
Well, that's just about as copper-bottomed, gilt-edged and flame-proof a summary of Imperium as you could find. So, do we conclude that Henry simply broke with Rome in order to seize more power for himself to achieve Imperium? Well, that's quite clearly where Henry ended up. But is it where he started out? The problem with Imperium, as an explanation of Henry's break with Rome, is that the dates just don't add up. So there's some good evidence that by 1532, 1533, by the end of Henry's divorce campaign, what he was most interested in was grabbing power over the church. He was heading towards imperium, the Renaissance idea of absolute power in his realm. Now, Henry started his divorce proceedings in 1527, and that year, as we've seen, he recruited a team of theologians to challenge the Pope's power. So far, so good. The problem is that Henry's campaign against Catherine of Aragon had already got going long before that. Before, in fact, anyone was talking or even hinting at reviving Henry's old interest in Imperium. So before we accept this Imperium interpretation, we need to settle a really basic question. When did Henry's campaign to divorce Catherine actually begin? The problem is that most accounts of Henry's divorce are preoccupied with Anne Boleyn, so they spend their time trying to find evidence about when her affair with Henry began. And the answer you usually get is 1527, or just possibly at a stretch 1526. But, as we saw last time at the History Café, Anne is much less important to this story than she seems. Catherine was the heavyweight at court, and what we should be looking more closely at is when Henry's relationship with Catherine began to change. Now, when we ask that question, we can certainly go back to the summer of 1525, when something very significant changed. On the 18th of June, 1525, Henry suddenly brought his young, illegitimate son out of obscurity. The boy's mother was Henry's mistress, Bessie Blunt, and he'd been named Henry Fitzroy, which literally means son of the king. You remember we talked about him last time. Henry never kept the boy's existence a secret, but nor had he ever given him a formal role at court. 18th of June, 1525, was little Fitzroy's sixth birthday. And on that day... As a present, Henry rather unexpectedly made him the Duke of Richmond. Now, that was the title Henry's father had had, and it made little Fitzroy, at a stroke, senior to all the other nobility, including his half-sister and heir to the throne, the Princess Mary. Well, her mother, Catherine, was understandably furious that her daughter had been publicly eclipsed, and for a couple of weeks, Catherine and Henry didn't speak. It was the first major public breach between them. Actually, when we look closely, we could take the start of this story back even further, to the autumn of 1524. It was then that Catherine had begun to find herself increasingly isolated at court. Her position got significantly worse after the row over Fitzroy's birthday, and by the end of 1526, Inigo de Mendoza, the Spanish ambassador, found he was no longer even allowed to meet Catherine. When he finally succeeded, Thomas Woolsey insisted on sitting in on the meeting. Her wishes are strong, reported the Spaniard, but, quotes, her means of carrying them into effect are small. So, suddenly, what in the space of 18 months or so, Catherine had lost the influence she'd always had at court and in foreign affairs. Meanwhile, a fashion for everything French rather than Spanish overtook Henry's court. 
So this then is the first turning point in this story, and it comes before Henry showed any interest in Anne, and at least two, if not three years, before Henry revived his interest in Imperium. What was going on? Well, rather than anything to do with theology, or the politics of Henry's bedchamber, this all seems very directly to have something to do with foreign policy. And when we begin to look around the room at what else was going on at this time, it becomes immediately very obvious what Henry was playing at. In just 18 months from the middle of 1524, Catherine of Aragon had progressively lost almost all her influence at court. And the reason seems to have everything to do with Henry's foreign policy. Let's begin the story in northern Italy, on the stormy night of the 24th of February 1525. Spanish forces under Fernando Francesco d'Abalos had been silently skirting the French army, which was entrenched outside the walls of Pavia in northern Italy. The French were commanded by their 31-year-old king, Francis I. That's the king Henry had wrestled with at the Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520. Well, on that occasion, Francis had won. For months now, Francis had been laying siege to Pavia. It was all part of his increasingly hopeless attempt to halt the relentless takeover of Italy by the King of Spain, Charles V. Now, we should be clear about why he's trying to stop Charles V taking over Italy. You see, in 1506, at the age of six, Charles had inherited the Habsburg lands in Flanders, roughly modern Belgium and the Netherlands. In 1516, ten years later, he became King of Spain. Then three years later, he inherited the Archduchy of Austria and was elected Holy Roman Emperor, a position which gave him power over much of what is now Germany as well. Historians therefore often refer to him as the Emperor and his armies as the Imperial Armies. And that's historically correct. But foreign affairs are complicated enough as it is, and we want to keep things as clear as possible, so we'll just call him the King of Spain and his armies Spanish. Of course, it's not strictly accurate, but the difference doesn't really affect this discussion, and it's much easier to follow. What matters here is that by 1520, Charles V ruled over most of Western Europe. And then he had begun to push his forces into Italy as well. Which is why, in 1525, the French king, Francis I, was leading an army to stop him. So where were we? We were in Pavia, northern Italy. In the first light of that day, 24th of February 1525, the French artillery suddenly open up, and King Francis himself leads a charge of gendarmerie, heavy horsemen. It's a disaster. He's surrounded. His men are pinned down by Spanish pikemen and shot to pieces by arquebusiers with their heavy handguns. Two hours later, 550 Spanish are dead, but so were close on 13,000 Frenchmen. And the French King Francis has been captured. To say that the Battle of Pavia changed everything would be an exaggeration. It simply confirmed what everybody already knew, that Charles V, King of Spain, was the unrivalled ruler of Europe. Not content with ruling Spain, Flanders, Austria and the Holy Roman Empire, which included parts of Germany, he could now push his power into the lush plains of northern Italy, which was split up into a number of weak and competing states. He could push maybe into the rest of Italy as well. Well, the French, Spain's only serious rivals, had struggled desperately to hold him back. But it was no use, 
and now even the French king had been captured. Well, when the news of all these events reached England, Henry was gleeful. It looked like a fabulous opportunity for him. Charles V, King of Spain, was his long-term ally, nephew of his wife Catherine. Most important of all, he was the fiancé of their only daughter and heir, the little princess Mary. So, Henry began planning a joint Anglo-Spanish invasion. They'd finish the French off. Henry would invade and regain the English Empire in northern France that had been lost a hundred years before. His financial troubles would be over. He'd win battles like Agincourt. He'd go down in history as another Henry V. Someday people would write plays about him. Once more into the breach. In May 1525, Henry sent two experienced negotiators to Spain to come up with a joint plan for invading France. And it didn't start well. Bad weather drove their ship into Galicia and they had to beg horses and set off across the mountains. They were short of food and didn't know exactly where in the vast tracts of Spain they could even find the Spanish king. But finally they tracked him down at Toledo. Charles V was charming. But the next day, the Spanish Chancellor coldly informed Henry's men that they had no money for an invasion of France. Worse still, the Spanish actually intended to make peace with France. Even more ominously, the Chancellor coolly demanded Henry at once send his daughter and only heir, the little Princess Mary, to live in Spain. Oh, and to bring her dowry with her, or the marriage would be off. (laughs) Poor little Mary. Well, it was a completely outrageous thing to demand. Mary was only nine. If she went to Spain, she'd be a hostage, forcing Henry to go along with the Spanish, whatever they chose to do. However much more of Europe they chose to take for themselves. Well, as soon as the English messengers got home, Henry turned the Spanish demand down flat. Not long after that, of course, Charles V married the 22-year-old Arabella of Portugal. It sealed an alliance between the two Iberian neighbours and landed Charles a rich dowry. And that, we assume, had been his plan all along. Long ago, in 1966, the historian R.B. Wernham wrote, The jilting of Princess Mary by Charles V in 1525 marked the great turning point in Henry VIII's reign. It's now an old verdict, and few historians have actively taken it up. But Wernham was right. Wolsey quickly came to the conclusion that there was now far more to gain from alliance with the French, desperate as they were to form a front against the Spanish and to release their king from Spanish captivity. But if you made an alliance with the French, it meant that Henry's Spanish queen, the powerful and widely popular Catherine of Aragon, would somehow have to be sidelined. England had been allied to the Spanish since the 1490s. That was the whole reason Henry had married Catherine of Aragon and why she'd been such a heavyweight player at court. But now Charles V was by far the stronger of the two European superpowers. It was obvious that he had no need whatsoever of the feeble English. If it wasn't obvious before, it certainly was after his crushing victory at Pavia and his jilting of little Mary. So if Henry was going to count in Europe and keep his shores safe and the channel open to his ships, he'd have to find a way to ditch the Spanish alliance and make an alliance instead with the old enemy, the French. And that meant that suddenly Henry's dear hunting companion, feisty wife Catherine, with whom he'd got along so well for so many years, had become an embarrassing and difficult problem. After all, for years, it had been Catherine who'd been the one person in England most responsible for keeping up the old alliance with Spain. So 
suddenly it becomes extremely starkly clear why, by May 1525, Catherine of Aragon was becoming a problem for Henry. It wasn't because she couldn't have any more children. It wasn't because she was no longer fun in bed. It wasn't because she and Henry didn't get on, or because she was too serious about her Catholic religion. It was because she was the key architect of the Spanish alliance, a woman who could be in close communication with Charles V's court, someone who often knew Henry's plans and who could discuss them privately with the Spanish ambassadors, in Spanish. If Henry's old Spanish alliance had to go, so too did his Spanish queen, Catherine. In fact, we can now see why things had been getting increasingly difficult for Catherine since the middle of 1524. Those were the months when Charles V's armies had been marching through northern Italy and he'd been growing stronger every day. No wonder then that Catherine had been growing increasingly isolated at court so that she was eventually forbidden to meet alone with the Spanish ambassador. And of course it's obvious now why things suddenly got a lot worse for Catherine after the Battle of Pavia and the jilting of Little Mary in 1525. It was sometime around the end of May 1525 that the messengers arrived home from Toledo with the bad news that Charles V had effectively broken his engagement with little Princess Mary. Now Henry acted straight away. It was just a couple of weeks later that he made his illegitimate son the Duke of Richmond. And in August he signed a peace deal with the French. Henry had completed a major U-turn in his European policy. Well, it's no wonder that people stopped talking to Catherine... No wonder either that the English court suddenly discovered a taste for French fashions. And no wonder, finally, a previously rather obscure courtier eventually began to stand out. As we saw in our first discussion in this series, by 1527, when Henry's affair with her probably began, Anne Boleyn was 26. She was already too old for a noblewoman still to be unmarried. Only one thing made Anne stand out from everyone else at court. Almost uniquely for an Englishwoman, she'd grown up at the French court, at a time when for much of her life England and France had been at war. She spoke fluent French. In fact, she could easily have been mistaken for French herself. Now, until the mid-1520s, her Frenchified manners would have been an embarrassment, a positive disadvantage in the entourage of Catherine of Aragon and the court of a king allied to the Spanish. But after the collapse of the Spanish alliance in 1525, Anne Boleyn apparently became more interesting. She was as close to a Frenchwoman as anyone else at Henry's court. The obvious thing for Henry to do if he was going to switch from a Spanish to a French alliance was to ditch Catherine and marry a French princess instead. But Henry couldn't marry a French princess until he was properly divorced from Catherine, and that was bound to take some time. So, if in the meantime Henry wanted to put public distance between himself and the Spanish Catherine of Aragon, with whom privately he still seems to have got on very well, there was no more pointed way of doing it than flirting with the Frenchified Mademoiselle Boulin. It wasn't so much a signal to the Queen, since Henry had had mistresses before, including Anne's less Frenchified sister. It was a signal to the Spanish. Henry would not be a prisoner to their foreign policy anymore. So the first turning point in Henry's long campaign to separate himself from Catherine of Aragon, and eventually from the Roman Catholic Church, followed from the rise and rise of Spanish power. His decision was finally triggered by the catastrophic defeat of the French at Pavia, the capture of the French king and the Spanish king's jilting of his daughter Mary. Henry promptly ditched his long-standing Spanish alliance, which had been the original reason for his marriage to Catherine. Instead, he signed a deal with the French, who needed his support much more. 
and, surprise, surprise, he began publicly flirting with the only woman at court who could pass herself off as French, Anne Boleyn. Now, none of this was, as many historians believe, anything to do with the Imperium, a grab for more power. As we keep on finding with this story, Henry's divorce makes much more sense as soon as we start to look at his foreign policy. A second turning point came in 1527, and it was just as much to do with Henry's foreign policy as the first. On the 17th of May, 1527, Henry began the formal process of obtaining a divorce. Well, technically speaking, it wasn't a divorce, but an annulment, a declaration that the king's marriage had never in reality ever existed. But contemporaries often called it the king's divorce, and we'll stick to that to keep things easier. Well, that day, 17th of May, 1527, Cardinal Wolsey sat with the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, to begin formal proceedings on the divorce case. And it was later that year, in August 1527, that Henry's relationship with Anne Boleyn began, or at any rate became publicly visible and significant. So what was going on at this time? Well, traditionally, of course, Henry's supposed to have fallen hopelessly in love with the difficult Miss Boleyn and thrown all caution to the winds in the attempt to get her into his bed. Well, now we know that she was in his bed already. And besides, we find much more obvious reasons for Henry's change of course. As soon as we look at Henry's foreign policy in early 1527, it's not difficult to find out. In February 1527, envoys had arrived in England from France. The French king, whom we last saw being ignominiously bundled into captivity by the Spanish, had at last been released. Now he was organising a new alliance against the Spanish. The Pope, the Venetians and other Italian states had already signed up. The French were now putting pressure on the English to join. Now, the Anglo-French negotiations in London took some time, as they well, always do. But on Tuesday, the 30th of April 1527, the Treaty of Westminster was finally signed between France and England, even though the celebrations were ruined by heavy rain. The treaty completed Henry's diplomatic revolution that had begun in 1525 and the ditching of the Spanish alliance. Henry now had a new ally in Europe, and this time it was an ally eager for joint military action. So Henry's now allied officially to the French, and Catherine of Aragon's position has become significantly more difficult. She's horribly in Henry's way. She stands for the failed Spanish policy and is only going to make trouble with the new French one. So, just a fortnight after he'd finally signed the deal with the French, Cardinal Wolsey, Henry's leading minister, begins formal proceedings to end the king's marriage and to get Catherine out of Henry's court. This second turning point is therefore just as much to do with foreign policy as the first one had been. Now, this story could easily have ended shortly afterwards. Wolsey would have referred the case to Rome, and in normal circumstances the Pope would have given Henry his annulment, his divorce. Wolsey would have travelled to France and negotiate a new royal marriage to a French princess. In fact, Wolsey did go to France in July 1527 and started talks to do exactly that, to marry Henry to the French king's cousin, René. Henry's divorce would have gone down in history as a relatively small episode in the long saga of his foreign policy. Nowadays, we'd remember Catherine of Aragon as the excellent and able queen who ended her days quietly in an obscure English country house, the victim of a twist in European politics. But events overtook this simple story, as we shall see next time at the History Café. 
For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. Listener.